Um, good morning, everybody. I want to uh, welcome you to the Summit Church, of course, with all of our campuses, those that are joining us. Um, I actually got a couple things for you before we get rolling this morning. So if you, I want you to take out your worship guide if you got it, because I want to point out a couple things uh, to you that are in there. Um, of course, every word and every syllable that is in this is very important, but uh, there are a couple things especially. Uh, just make sure you notice. You notice that, um, the third one down says the Cary Apex Campus Pre-Launch Venue. Uh, this is going to start on June 5th. Uh, what we did is we surveyed our congregation and figured out where people were driving the farthest from to come to this campus, and the winner was the Cary Apex area. Uh, and so we are going to be launching a campus there, Lord willing, in the fall. Uh, just so you know that our philosophy behind these things, um, we just believe that it's easier to reach people um, when you're close to them. And so we made a decision a couple of years ago uh, that rather than just building one big gargantuan facility that people drive from 45 minutes all across the triangle to come to, we say, hey, you know, here's our, our phrase, stay where you are, serve where you live, let's be the church in that community. Because it's easier to reach people around you when, when you have something close to you, right? I mean, you know, you ever tried to uh, start a relationship with somebody like the, the barista at Starbucks and you invite her to come to church and yeah, I go to church 45 minutes away. They're not coming uh, 45 minutes away. So it's easier for us to impact the community. So rather than one big, huge place, um, we are in campuses all across the triangle. Um, if you're in the Cary Apex region, I would invite you to come be a part of that, uh, at least to check it out. Um, we got a leadership team, a campus pastor that God has raised up out from um, um, our congregation who's going to be leading that. Uh, if you have no interest in it at all, I would still encourage you to go once or twice, if nothing else, just to know people from the Cary Apex region. Uh, so it'll start meeting on Sundays at 9 o'clock at BC South, um, all right? The second one's right below that, City Church Vision Day. Uh, that's going to be right after this service at 1 o'clock. Uh, some of you hear me talking and you're like, yeah, I don't want to go to Cary Apex. I want to get out of the state. Uh, that's how far away I, I want to be from this place. Um, great, we got a thing for you too. Um, we are planning a church out right outside of Nashville, Tennessee. And um, there are some of you uh, that your job is at a place, maybe you just graduated from college or something, but your job is at a place where it might be mobile. And you could think about investing your life right outside of Music City, USA to help us plant a church. It's not a campus. I'm not speaking there by video. It's an independent church led by Trevor Atwood, who's been on our staff for years. Uh, Y'all, one of the bittersweet things about my job here at this church is that I have to say goodbye to some of the best and brightest people um, who go out from here to plant uh, churches uh, around the world. Uh, Trevor Atwood is not one of those. Uh, no, I'm kidding. Uh, he is one of those, and he's going to be doing that. Uh, let me make this really clear so I don't confuse you. I pray almost daily that God would bring college students and young professionals to us who would say, I want to invest my life in the Raleigh-Durham area, and I want to be a part of the Summit Church, and I'm going to find a job that keeps me here. I pray for that. But I know that some of you, there may be something stirring in you that you feel like God has closed this chapter of the Raleigh-Durham, the Raleigh-Durham chapter part of your life. And, and if that's you, then I would invite you to come out at one o'clock and just hear um, about what's going on there. So um, anyway, I throw that out there to you, uh, young professionals, people nearing retirement, whatever. Um, it'd be a great thing to do. Uh, all these uh, are conditioned, by the way, on the fact that Jesus doesn't actually come back this weekend like he had been uh, slated to come back, according to some. Uh, so, you know, I, I actually was kind of disappointed when six o'clock rolled around last night. He hadn't come back. I, I didn't think there was any chance possible since Jesus pretty clearly said that no man knows the day or the hour. Uh, but I, I was kind of disappointed. In fact, you know, we have a six o'clock Saturday service. So we actually turned on the countdown clock. I kid you not. And I stood up here on stage at 6 a.m. And when it, <laughs> when it hit zero, this person out in the middle of the thing jumped up like they were trying to be raptured, but nothing happened. And they just came right back down. <laughs> So I don't know, if, it, if, if Jesus comes back, then these uh, announcements are moot. Uh, he may come back before I finish this sermon. Um, if so, Danny Franks has graciously agreed to finish the sermon for me. Uh, so you won't have to worry about that. And you can just get right with God, all right? <laughs> we'll see you in seven years. Um, I, uh, if you've got your Bible, I want you to take it and I want you to open it to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24, we're coming to the end today of our study of the Gospel of Luke, uh, which I'm a little sad about. Uh, you guys know me, whatever series we're doing is my favorite one, and so this is my favorite one that I've ever done. Um, Luke, the Gospel of Luke has been the story of the coming of a king, and today I'm going to show you how it all ends, except it doesn't really end. Uh, Luke is actually part one of a two-part volume in the Bible, <coughs> a two-part volume. Uh, you know what the other one is, anybody? 
That's right, the book of Acts. The book of Acts is the second part. Luke also wrote that one. And this is kind of a break right in the middle. We're not going to study Acts directly yet. We'll do that maybe in a couple of years. But um, we're coming to the end of Luke, and Luke is just going to kind of continue on. Um, it doesn't really end. It's, uh, if anything, it's like Winston Churchill said. It's, you know, it's, it's not the end. It's not the beginning. Uh, it might be the end of the beginning or the beginning of the end. We're not sure which one, but uh, that's, that's what, how, how Luke ends there. This story in Luke has all the power and all the drama and all the passion of the greatest of stories. Uh, and one of my favorite authors, C.S. Lewis, said that one of the reasons that we tend to love fantasy stories, we love fairy tales, we love stories about knights who slay dragons and rescue the princess, and we love stories about kings who come back and rescue their people from enemies. He said the reason that we love that, the reason there's a part of our heart that's attracted to that, is because they're modeled after one great true story. The story of the real king who came to earth to rescue people, the real king who fought off danger that we could not fight off ourselves, the real king who rescued the love of his life so that we could be with him. This story that we've studied in the Gospel of Luke. Now, last time that the disciples had seen Jesus, when we find him in Luke 24, is they'd seen somebody taking his dead body down off of a cross. A couple of the disciples and several of the women had said that they'd seen Jesus since then, but you'll notice there in verse 11 of chapter 24, it says that this seemed like nonsense to them. Like they were making stuff up, or they were hallucinating, or they were just seeing stuff through their grief, and, and it just didn't seem reliable to them. So that's where we pick up in verse 36. Verse 36, as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them. I, I love that little phrase, that he stood among them. Not that he walked into the midst of them, uh, right? He just like, they're in a small group, they're standing in a circle, and all of a sudden, boom, he's there. You know, if, if Star Trek writers had, had written this, he would have beamed into the midst of them. He teleported into them. The Gospel of John tells you that the doors were all locked. He just stood there. And then he says to them, peace to you. But to me, that's actually a little humorous. I think you see a little bit of the playful side of Jesus there. They think he's dead. And he just appears in the midst of them and says, peace to you. Right? I mean, it's, I mean it's, that's the last emotion that's going through their heart when a guy they think is dead it shows up in the middle, middle of them. It's, it's like, you know, imagine if I came home at night, my, you know, I'm out and I came home and get in the house without my wife knowing that I'm in there and she's at the, the, the sink doing dishes all by herself and the lights are kind of low and I sneak up behind her and I grab her from behind and I yell, relax, relax. That is the last emotion she feels when I grab her from behind, right? That's the last emotion they're going to feel. I, I think Jesus got a good chuckle out of that. Uh, verse 37. But they were startled and frightened, and they thought they'd seen a spirit. And he said to them, well, why are you troubled? Well, because we see dead people. That's why we're troubled. And why do doubts arise in your heart? Verse 39, see my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones like you see that I have. This was a, a real resurrection, not a, a mythical one. One of the things I hear uh, people say sometimes is that the disciples never really believed that Jesus rose from the dead. They just felt like he was risen in their hearts. And later Christians added the stuff about him actually being raised from the dead. But what they really meant was he was like spiritually risen to them. Kind of like, you know, when your grandmother dies and you feel like, oh, she's still with us. We remember her and we remember some things that, that she taught to us. Or, or, you know, some people get a little bit more sophisticated and they say, no, 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 he's, he's risen because the Christ force is at work within us. And the same Christ force that was working in him is working in us and that's how he's risen from the dead. Or, or one of my favorites uh, from something I read recently in Time Magazine, always a reliable source of information, um, said this. He said, Christ is risen in the sense that his teachings live on in our hearts. Well, by that definition, who is not risen from the dead? That is exactly what this passage is not saying. It goes out of its way to point out that he could be seen. He could be touched. He could eat a piece of fish, which you'll see him here doing in a minute. So no, it's not like your grandmother's still with you in the memories of your heart and the things you remember from her, unless your grandmother regularly takes food off of your plate in the table and eats it in front of you. Okay, it, it's not, unless she does that, it's not like, it's not like that. It's an actual resurrection. And y'all, let me tell you this, Christianity rises or falls on this point. It rises or falls in this one. There's a lot of things that we can disagree about as Christians. There's a lot of things that we can interpret differently and still be okay. And we can still get along if we disagree about this right here. But this point right here is the foundation. This is the whole thing right here. And the reason for that is what I've often explained to you, that the central point of Christianity is not what Jesus taught. It's not what Jesus taught. The central point of Christianity is what Jesus did. And the fact that he rose from dead validates 
the fact that Jesus had lived for us and died for us and paid for our sin. And if he hasn't risen from the dead, then he didn't really pay for our sin. And if he didn't pay for our sin, then this whole thing is useless. That's what Paul said, 1 Corinthians 15. If Christ has not risen from the dead, then you are still in your sins and your faith is useless. 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 So this is the point of all of it. Verse 40. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. But why his hands and his feet? Why? Well, you know this, right? I mean, the nail scars are in his hands and his feet. The, uh, the Gospel of John tells you that he retained the scars. That forever, for eternity, Jesus will perpetually have the scars of our sin in his body. Verse 41. The only man-made thing in heaven, by the way. The nail scars of Jesus. Verse 41. And while they still disbelieved for joy. I love that phrase. They've gone from disbelieving because it's not possible to disbelieving because it's too good to be true. And they were marveling. He said to them, have you anything here to eat? Which is kind of a strange thing just to say in the middle while they're trying to figure out, you know, if they're still alive and if they've seen a ghost. He's like, hey, you got something to eat? And they're like, yeah. Verse 42, they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and, and ate it before them. Here's another piece of evidence, by the way, that shows you that these stories are not myths that are made up. And people like to say the resurrection stories, again, are myths that got added in later. That, that later Christians, in an attempt to beef up Christianity, you know, took the, these stories of Jesus and they, they turned him into God. They turned him into somebody to resurrect from the dead. In reality, Jesus was a barefoot indie rocker who wanted to give people peace, love, and groovy vibes. And it was these later Christians that, that came up with stuff about him being God, being resurrected from the dead. No! The New Testament scholar N.T. Wright points out, follow me, that these stories, they just don't read like myths. There was one passage in the Old Testament, one passage that talked about the resurrection. Only one. Daniel 12.3, or at least with any specificity. Daniel 12.3. And it says that in the resurrection, the unrighteous are resurrected to judgment, and the righteous are resurrected, and their bodies shine like the stars in heaven. Question. If you were a Jewish person writing a myth, why wouldn't you put more mythical kind of elements in it? Like, like Jesus coming out and his body shining like the stars of heaven. I'll give you a great example. The Gospel of Peter which was written about 200 years after the New Testament, clearly not written by Peter. It's, it's one of the, the fake Gospels, and scholars agree that it's at least 200 years after the rest of the New Testament was written. The Gospel of Peter has all kinds of mythical elements in it. I'll read you part of it here. It, said, it says, three men walk out of the tomb, and in between them is a third man whose head sticks out above the clouds, and a cross follows him out of the tomb. And the voice from heaven says, Hast thou preached to those that are dead? And the cross says, We have. That's a myth, right? But in these accounts, Jesus walks out normal size and orders fish and chips. <laughs> and then none of the church leaders believe that it's really him. Is that the kind of stuff? Are those the kind of details you would include if you were writing a myth? No. Verse 44. And he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while, while I was still with you. That everything written about me in the law, the Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled and then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written, the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. It had been there the whole time. It's almost like one of those pictures that you're, you're looking at. Remember the pictures with all the dots in them? And, and, and like there's some 3D image in it. And I think it's called Magic Eye. Do you remember those? And do you remember how the first time that you saw that, you claimed to have seen something when you actually didn't see anything? Anybody with me? No? Like for a solid year, I was like, oh yeah, it's a dragon. You know, but I, I wasn't seeing anything. You got to cross your eyes just right. Are you tracking with me? Um, this is what happens as you're studying the Bible and you start to really get it. You start to see that there are a couple of things that are running through every story of the Bible. One of them is the gospel. The other one is the person of Jesus. And I'm telling you, this is when Bible study gets fun. You're looking all of a sudden, you're like, boom, how did I not see that? The gospel that God was going to accomplish our salvation by himself. That the, the salvation was a gift that he would give at his expense, that he would give it to us and we would receive it. That's in every story of the Bible. Uh, the person of Jesus, that he was going to come and live the life that we were supposed to live and save us as God's son for us. It's there. And that's why I love studying the Bible. It's why I love teaching it to you. Because I love showing you how the gospel and Jesus are through every story of scripture. And anytime you interpret a story of the Bible and don't see the gospel and Jesus in it, you have interpreted it wrongly. It makes Bible study awesome, adventurous, because it's like one of my other favorite authors, Peter Crave, says, studying the Bible is like looking through a keyhole and then seeing somebody look back at you. It's Jesus. It's, it's the gospel. And, and so he opens their minds so that they, they see that. Verse, where are we? Verse 47. 
And he told him that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, starting in Jerusalem. There's your mission, by the way. Verse 48, and you, he says, are witnesses of these things. He was going to commission them and preserve their memories so that they could accurately record for you and me what we needed to know about Jesus. Verse 49, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Verse 50, then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them, and he was carried up into heaven. By the way, if you will indulge my curiosity here for just a minute, just a minute. We know that Jesus had a real body, right? I mean, that was the whole point. He wasn't spiritually raised. He was physically raised. So it's not like when he went up into the sky, he just evaporated back into the spirit world. Because the whole point is, he's got a real body. So where did he go? Where did he go? I mean, is he on a planet somewhere? Because somewhere, he is there with a real body right now. A real physical body. That's the whole point. So where'd he go? C.S. Lewis said it's probably something like, you know, if you're watching a play and you got a curtain on stage and the actor comes out and takes his bow or her bow, then, then and all of a sudden he slips through the curtain and you don't see him anymore. That Jesus slipped through a fold, uh, some kind of fold, some kind of, kind, of, kind of sliver in the universe and went into another dimension and he's there now. I don't know. And you don't know. And if you think you do know, you're wrong because it just doesn't tell us. Where'd he go? I don't know, but he's there somewhere and we'll see him one day. Then here's our key verse, verse 52. And they worshipped him. First time that Luke has used the word worship in relation to Jesus in his gospel. If you ever hear an overzealous New Testament professor tell you that Jesus is not God in the other gospels, he's only God in John, there's your proof right there that they're wrong because Jews would only worship somebody who was God. He was God. He worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. There's our key phrase. Circle that. And then they were continually in the temple blessing God. Luke ends his gospel by talking about their joy. Their joy. Which is a little counterintuitive, isn't it? I mean, here you got Jesus. He's leaving. He is their leader. They're convinced he is God. And by the way, it's not like he's left them in a great situation where they're going to sit around and rule with a bunch of servants and just enjoy blessing upon blessing. No, he's told them they're going to be hated like he was hated. They're going to carry the cross that he had to carry. They are going to pour out their lives for others the way that he poured out his life for them. What is joyful about that? Their leader, the guy they are convinced is God, the miracle worker, is gone. And he has left them with a life that is harder than most of us would ever think our lives could become. And they have joy. What is joyful about that? Their joy, listen, was anchored in four things that they got in those previous verses from the resurrection that I'm going to try to show you today. All right? Four things that their joy was anchored in. Certainty, hope, purpose, presence. Certainty, hope, purpose, and presence. And what I want to try to show you today is that each of you, all of us, are trying to find joy through those same four things. And that if your certainty, hope, purpose, and presence are anchored in the right thing, you'll have joy. Listen to this. Joy is a byproduct of anchoring your life in the right thing. Joy is a byproduct of anchoring your life in the right thing. Think of it like a flower. I give you a flower. You take it home. It's a a flower plant. You take it home and you plant it in rich soil, in a garden. Then all of a sudden it grows and it produces more flowers, right? If you take that same flower and you plant it in in a pail of concrete, then you can't come back to me and complain that the flowers, something wrong with it, it's not growing. No, it's that you planted it in the wrong soil. Joy is the flower when the roots are where they are supposed to be. It's a byproduct. So contrary to what a lot of you believe, listen, you will not find joy by changing your circumstances. You, you take that, you, that flower that's planted in concrete and you put it out in the sun and water it, it's still not growing because it's in the wrong soil. And some of you think, oh, if I'd ever just get married, then I'd be joyful. Listen, no. I've been a pastor for 10 years, and I've seen this. Lonely, unhappy single people become lonely, bitter, married people. And then they sit in my office and want me to fix it. And that's because you look to marriage to do something that, that was not designed to give you that kind of joy. Contrary to what you think, you were not going to find joy by learning new techniques to deal with stress. I don't care how many books you buy from Barnes & Noble. You can't change circumstances. Joy is a byproduct of being planted in the right thing. And these disciples are going to have joy because their certainty, their hope, their purpose, and their presence are anchored in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And because of that, they had a joy 
that was better than anything else life could give them. They had a joy that death and deprivation could not take away. So here's my question for you. Do you have that kind of joy? And where are you planting your certainty, your hope, your purpose, and your presence? Because I would say that most of us are anchored in a place that it really can be taken away and we don't even live with that much joy to begin with. All right, here we go. Number one. Number one. Certainty. Certainty. You notice again, verse 38, that before this, they still doubted. They still doubted. The disciples had no expectation of a risen Messiah. Again, a lot of people try to suggest that this was a common way in the ancient days to deal with the death of your political leader as you, you, you came up with some myth about them being resurrected from the dead. That is just not true. The hope of the Messiah for them, for a Jew, was he was one who was supposed to throw off the yoke of oppression, not be overtaken by it, and certainly not then to tell his followers that they were destined for the cross that he died on. I mean, th these guys, you see this? They didn't even get it when he told it to them. And even after he appears to them, they're still having problems believing it after they've seen him. So what changed their minds? What changed their minds? What made them go throughout the world to their deaths proclaiming a message that depended on Jesus being raised from the dead? Was it just wishful thinking? You say, well, I know, I know. Maybe they were trying to gain religious power, you know, trying to get people to, to follow their religion by beefing it up with these miracles and resurrection claims. Okay, why then would they have come up with a story about Jesus having a kingdom that was not of this world? I mean, the earliest Christians taught people not to fight back against their enemies. The earliest Christians taught people to be radically generous and to not build a kingdom here, but to build it, you know, in, in, in eternity. What advantage would they have in teaching that if it wasn't true? To say that they just made up the stories about Jesus means basically that they're sitting around one day, and you know, after Jesus has died, they're in a boat fishing, and Peter stands up, he's like, I got it, I know. You know, Jesus, we'll tell everybody he resurrected from the dead, and then they'll believe us. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah that's a great idea. Okay, and then we'll do this. We'll tell them that his kingdom's out of this world. So when people kill us, we won't fight back. <laughs> we'll forgive them. And, 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 and we'll give away all our money and teach all our followers to give away their money because his kingdom is not of this world. And if we're lucky, maybe we'll all die painful, humiliating martyrs' deaths, us and our children. And all the disciples are like, yeah, that's a great idea. Let's sign up. You know, that's insane. They would never have done that had they not believed that Jesus' resurrection was true. Their whole message was based on the fact that he'd actually risen from the dead. And his kingdom was eternal. And, and here's another thing. Why would they have celebrated Jesus' death if they weren't sure of his resurrection? You ever think about that? We know that from the earliest Christians, any scholar will tell you this, believing, unbelieving, that the earliest Christians celebrated communion. Now, as far back as we can go, the earliest Christians are celebrating communion, which commemorates the death of Jesus. Why would you celebrate the death of your leader unless it had somehow been swallowed up in a greater victory? We have heroes in the United States. Some of our heroes have been murdered. We don't celebrate their murder. We don't celebrate the murder of Abraham Lincoln or Martin Luther King. We celebrate their birth, which represents their life. We don't celebrate their murder. Why is it that the apostles are, every time they get together, celebrating the death of their leader? It makes no sense unless they somehow saw that that death had been part of a larger victory. You, you, you see what I'm getting at? All right, here's another one. How come we don't know where Jesus was buried? Nobody knows where Jesus was buried. The Jerusalem tourist agency will tell you they know, but they're not telling you the truth. <laughs> we don't know. We don't. They, they, they've got it limited down to two places, but all it is is a guess. Within two decades of Jesus having risen from the dead, nobody knew where he was, had been buried. You want to know why that is? I, I'll explain to you this way. If somebody in your life dies that's close to you and it's an untimely death, suddenly everything they, they left behind becomes precious to you, doesn't it? This was their room. I want it to stay just like it was when they were here because I want to remember them. Their shoes, these were their shoes. I'm going to keep their shoes. Now, what's ironic about that is when that person was alive, and if they are alive, all those same things become annoying to you. Oh, your shoes are in the living room again. Would you please clean up your shoes? If, if you're not going to clean up your room, at least shut the door so I don't have to look at it. Right? The disciples didn't care about where Jesus was buried because he wasn't there anymore. They didn't care about his tomb because they believed he'd been risen from the dead. You say, well, okay, maybe, maybe the earliest disciples didn't believe it. Maybe other people made it up later and they inserted it into these stories. Okay, where's the evidence for that? Where are the other gospels that basically just have Jesus as an indie rocker? I, I've never seen one. And if somebody later were doctoring these books to try to beef up support for Christianity... 
why would you leave all the stuff in there that makes the disciples look like buffoons? Because they're the leaders of the church, right? And if you're trying to inspire confidence in your leaders, why are you keep presenting them as the three stooges? I mean, you're seeing this in the Gospels? It's like they never can't get anything right. Jesus raised from the dead. They're still too dim-witted to figure out that he did it. Even after he shows up, they're like, ah, it's not really you. He's like, no, they they don't get it. They're, they're, They're slow. The women get it. All the women get it. The Pharisees get it. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus are the ones who take Jesus down from the cross and bury him. They get it. The disciples don't get it. Why would you tell a bunch of stories that make the disciples look like idiots if they weren't true? See, it just doesn't read like a myth. The earliest Christians believed that Jesus rose from the dead. And that gave them a joy that turned Jesus' death into triumph. And it gave them a resolve that made them willing to face their own death to complete the mission. They had a joy that death and deprivation could not take away. They had certainty. They had certainty. So here's my question. What is your certainty in? I have staked my life and my eternity on the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. If you're not a follower of Jesus, you have staked your life and eternity on the fact that he has not. What is your certainty in? Now you say, well, J.D., can you prove to me that Jesus rose from the dead? No. I also can't prove to you that this is my consciousness is not the dream of a butterfly. I've seen Matrix. I know how that works. But I have a relative degree of certainty that this is not the dream of a butterfly. The reason I say that is because some of you are looking for something that is really inconsistent because you don't ask for this kind of proof in any other area of your life. There is reasonable evidence enough to make me certain that Jesus rose from the dead. And it is certain enough that I stake my entire life on it. And that certainty gave them a joy that gave them joy in the midst of pain and resolve in the midst of persecution. Number two, hope. Second anchor, hope. Where's your certainty? Second thing I want to ask you is where's your hope? The resurrection of Jesus gave them hope in two different ways. Check this out. In his resurrection, he gave them a picture of the creation they were headed to. His resurrection gave them a picture of the creation they were headed into. He could be touched. He could eat fish. They could recognize him, but it could also beam into rooms. I've told you throughout this series that Jesus was more alive after the resurrection, not less alive, and that all that we love down here is just a pale reflection that we're going to get to experience a resurrection version of up there. And think, listen, think by way of analogy. If Jesus' resurrected body was recognizable, could still enjoy broiled fish, but could pass through walls, what does the resurrected version of the Alps look like? What if analogously what happened to Jesus' body is going to happen to the rest of the world? Heaven is not whisking us off into the clouds or into nirvana. Jesus said it was a new heavens, a new earth, a resurrected version of those things. What does it look like? What's it like to experience that? Down here, we've got five senses. Maybe up there we'll have a hundred. What does that look like? What does that look like? It's got to be awesome. Yeah, how do you describe light to somebody who has no eyes? When Paul was talking about eternity, he said this. He said, I has not seen, nor has ear heard, nor has entered into the heart of man what God has prepared for those that love him. I take that to mean that you and I don't have the sensual capacity to understand what God has prepared. You see, that gives people hope who are in the midst of pain and deprivation. So a Johnny Erickson Tata, whose story I told you last week, a quadriplegic who loses her ability to walk and to move anything below her neck when she's a teenager she has hope because she's not going to be a disembodied spirit floating around the clouds up there she's going to have real legs she's going to know what it's like to walk and to run the things she has been deprived of here she experiences in their fullness there you're married or you're not married and you've always wanted to be married and you're like if i don't get married this time around on earth then i'm just going to be lonely no no marriage is just a pale reflection here of something that is eternally fulfilled there in eternity the lame walk the lonely have companionship the blind see the poor abound with riches the good the best the resurrected version is coming and that gave them hope in the midst of deprivation the other way that he gives them hope is he shows them there's a purpose in their pain 
You remember that point about them showing him showing his nail scars in his hands and his feet? What, what was he showing them? Jesus' crucifixion, if there was one time where it ever looked like their lives were out of control, it was during the crucifixion, right? If there was ever one time when it looked like the, good, the bad guys were winning and that God was absent, it was when Jesus died on the cross. And now here he stands in front of them showing, get this guy, get this, that his nails in his hands and his feet, the time when they thought God was most out of control was actually the time that God was most in control. And the very bad things that had happened in their life where they thought God was absent were the very things that God had used for their ultimate salvation. No wonder they disbelieved for joy. Do you see that? There are three kinds of movies, right? There are movies with good endings. I like those movies. There are movies with bad endings. I don't like those movies. If I'm in a movie and it doesn't end well, I'm like, I wasted my money. The critics are like, oh, but it's so real to life. I know. My life is depressing enough. I don't need to pay $20 to come out depressed. If I'm going to pay 20 bucks, I want to come out feeling good for just a few minutes. That's all I ask, okay? So movies with good endings, movies with bad endings. And then there's the best kind of movie. And that are movies that have really, they're really bad all the way through it, but then they end with a really good ending. And all of the bad things that happen somehow become part of the good ending or what caused the good ending to be able to come. Right, so it's not just a good ending slapped on the end of a depressing life. It's like all these bad things that were happening actually were part of the good ending. You, you tracking with me? I, I was trying to think of a good example of a movie on this, and the only one I can come up with, I got to reach back into yesteryear. So hang it with me, okay? Remember that movie by the director M. Night Remember that guy? Uh, I always feel like I'm speaking in tongues when I say his name. Um, M. Night Signs. Signs. You remember that movie, if you can remember back, it's all this bad stuff has happened to this guy. His wife has died. His brother's got a failed baseball career. His daughter is OCD, and so she drinks half cups of water and leaves them everywhere. Um, his son's got asthma. All these bad things that happen. But in the end, the good ending actually is because all of those things happen. Those become the very means by which the good ending is achieved. And you walk out feeling like that was worth $18 for me to walk out and see that all those bad things happen and that, and that good thing. That is what Jesus is showing them. That the very worst things, the times when they thought life was so out of control were the times that God was most working for their good. No wonder they disbelieved for joy. What if God, what if God was suddenly able to open your eyes and to show you that those most painful moments in your life, the times when you thought God was most absent, the times when you said, God, where are you? What if God suddenly opened your eyes and showed you how those very things were the things that he was using to produce that good ending? You might disbelieve for joy. What if you really believe, Romans 8, 28, that all things work together for good? All, all things, not, not the good things. All things, the good, the bad, the ugly, all of it was working for God's best and most beautiful plan. Question, what's your hope in? What's your hope in? Your ability to make a good life for yourself? Your ability to hold on to a good life? Well, so then what happens when life goes wrong? What happens when the job falls apart? What happens when the marriage partner disappoints you or dies or leaves you? What happens? Proverbs 14, 12 says, hope deferred makes the heart sick. The word sick means it leads it to depression because what you'd set your hope on crumbles. I always thought that I'd be married. I always thought I'd have this kind of job. I always thought this is the kind of home I have and I don't get it. And so you go into deep depression. The disciples are going to go through some very difficult chapters of their life ahead, but they had a joy that death could not touch, deprivation could not take away, disease could not, disease could not corrupt, because their joy was anchored in a hope that was anchored in something that was beyond the touch of disease and death, the resurrected body of Jesus. What's your hope in? And is it something that death and disease can take away? Number three. Purpose. Purpose. Because of his resurrection, Jesus showed them that they did not have to be on, on an obsessive quest to obtain everything down here. You remember I explained this to you last week. If the resurrection is true, then bucket lists don't matter that much. Because whatever we miss out on down here, we get a much better version of up there. And remember I explained that it is our refusal to believe that that keeps us from being able to really live like true disciples 
because we can never really sacrifice because we're so obsessed with what we're missing out on this time around. Oh, I got to get married. I got to get married. If I don't get married now, I'm never going to have to just get married. No, 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 I'm be married. No, no. Marriage, just a pale reflection. Oh, I'm never going to see the Alps. If I don't save up my money now, take a vacation. I'm never going to see the Alps. I'm going to get what time to see the Alps. No Alps in heaven. Yes, there is. There is an Alps in heaven. I don't know what it looks like, but I know that somehow it relates to the Alps now, the way that Jesus' resurrected body, which can eat fish and pass through walls, relates to the Alps that are here. And I'm willing on this earth to maybe forego some of the things that I'd like to see now because I get to experience them in eternity. It tells me obtaining everything down here is not essential. But it also shows me, get this, it also shows me that people do matter. People matter. Interesting thing about Jesus' resurrection. You notice this, his followers recognize him, but not at first. Like Mary. Mary Mary's first one that sees him in the garden after he's resurrected. Not, not his mom, but the, um, the other one, his friend, Mary. And, and she, she doesn't recognize him. Until he says, Mary, oh, it's you, I didn't recognize you. His disciples feel like they've seen a spirit when they look at him. You know, whenever you see him appearing after the, the resurrection, he's always like, uh, it's me. Hey, it's me. Well, actually, he would have said, it is I, because he would speak correct English if he spoke English. It is I. And they're like, oh, yeah, I see you now. What's going on with that? A little deep, so hang with me. There's a certain graduation, or there's a certain flowering in the resurrection that has continuity with the past, but is so much more than the past. I'll give you an example. You guys know, you know me well enough to know that I think my, my daughters are the, the most beautiful people in the world. Right? But they're eight, five, and three. So just little kids. Think of the three-year-old, Raya. Let's say that for some reason I, she gets separated from me, and I think she, she died. I think she, she separated, separated from me for 20 years. 20 years later, she walks up to me. Now, I think she's dead. I have no category for the fact that she might be alive. She walks up to me, and she says, at 23, do you recognize me? My response to her is, I'm sorry, I don't think we've met. And then she says, Daddy. And all of a sudden, I see in that face the little beauty that I loved at three years old, which has now become that young woman. The little traces of personality that I saw at three years old have become the mature woman that I see at 23. And I look at her at 23 years old, this bright, articulate, beautiful young woman, and I say, I knew it! I knew it! I knew it! I always knew you could become like this. And I saw it in seed form in you at three years old. But you had to tell me what it looked like at 23 because I didn't know what it was going to look like. That's what happened in Jesus' resurrection. There were evidences of the real him still there, but they didn't get it. They didn't see it until he told them about it. It will be that way, listen, for us in the resurrection. You're going to see people, you're going to see people that you knew on earth, and you're going to be like, I knew it, I knew it. I always knew you could be like this. I, I saw flashes of it in your best moments, but only flashes and only in your best moments. And then you went back to, to the regular annoying you, okay, that I live with. But, but I saw these flashes, and then now I see them in their fullness. That's what happens in the resurrection, which means, listen, that what you and I are investing in one another's lives now, you see, that carries eternal significance because people matter and we are every day, every moment helping the seeds of beauty and Christ-likeness that God has planted in those people that are around us. We are helping them grow into those things. And I'm seeing in you something eternal that lasts forever. So my investment in you matters. This is what was on C.S. Lewis's mind when he wrote that famous passage in The Weight of Glory. Listen to this. I love this. It is a serious thing to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to. Think about who that is for you. Don't stare, don't point, okay? Dullest and most interest, uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. Or else, a horror and a corruption such as you now meet. If at all, only in a nightmare. All day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one of the other of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities. It is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all of our dealings with one another. 
all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You've never talked to a mere mortal. It is immortals with whom we joke, work, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. This does not mean that we are to be perpetually solemn. No, we must play, but our merriment must be of that kind. And it is, in fact, the merriest kind, which exists between people who have, from the outset, taken each other seriously. Bucket list don't matter. Bucket list don't matter because the resurrection is true. But people matter. So we take them seriously. And we get to be a part in seeing and seed form what will flower in, in eternity. And then in verse 47... He tells them that people all over the world matter. He lifts their eyes to the nations. The gospel, he says, must be preached to all the nations. All people everywhere must be called to repentance and to receive this gift of forgiveness. All people in all nations are made in the image of God. This gospel was not just for the Jews. It's not just for us. It's not just for our children. The people in the unreached people groups around the world, it is for them. God loves their children as much as he loves mine. The homeless, the orphan, the prisoner, the unwed mother, the high school dropout, born into situations where they don't feel loved. They are loved by God. And God commissions us to go and to tell them because they matter. They're loved by God. And this message has to get to them. And this life is the only shot we have to get it to them. Summit, listen, people from our generation who die without hearing about this gospel will never get another chance. And thus, they should be, for the most part, the only thing on our bucket list. This generation of Christians is responsible for this generation of souls all over the world. Which is why I will tell you and I will commend this to you. My bucket list are the unreached people groups in the world. That's what's on my bucket list. The rest of the stuff, if I see it, great. If I experience it, awesome. If not, I'll get it later, that's fine. But right now, I got one shot at the unreached people groups. I got one shot at lost people. And that means that I'm going to leverage my life for them because they're the only thing that I cannot invest in in eternity. I'm not against having nice stuff if God has blessed you with it. I'm just telling you, you don't need everything down here. You have a mansion in heaven that makes whatever place you live on, makes Bill Gates look like trash, makes his house look like, you'll get that in heaven. So don't you think you could live on less here? so that you could invest in people who only have one shot to hear the gospel? Don't you think you could make the purpose of your life, leveraging your life for the purpose of seeing people connected to the gospel who otherwise would not be? What if some of you begin to think about the resources? God's given a lot of you some massive resources, massive talent. What if you started to say, okay, God, how do I use that talent? Not to invest in a bunch of stuff down here, which is actually a pale reflection of what I get up there. What if I use this one shot that I have and leverage what I have for the purposes of the Great Commission? You know what that would give you? It would give you joy. That's what it would give you. Because you would have joy in knowing that your life is eternally significant. You would have joy knowing that you're not building a house that's ultimately going to be left to your kids or burned down. You'd have joy in knowing that your life matters for eternity. Here's my question. What's your purpose? So you don't have purpose, I know that, because you tell it to me. What's your purpose? Is it something that lasts for eternity? Does your life have eternal significance? And if not, maybe it's time that you reevaluated how you could use your resources, your money, your time, your talents, for the purposes of what God's doing on earth that lasts forever. Number four, presence. Presence. Let me take this one from a kind of strange place. He eats with them. He eats with them. There are two accounts in Luke 24 of G the risen Jesus interacting with his disciples. I love this. Both times he eats with them, which is one of the things I love about Jesus. He loves to eat. All right, this is why we get along. First time I see him, we're going to eat. I don't know what we're going to eat, but we're going to eat marriage supper of the lamb. Now, what's the significance of that? It's not just that Jesus loves food, although that's important. The significance is eating in Jewish thinking was a sign of intimate fellowship. So the two times that he sees his disciples after he's resurrected in Luke, he eats with them. Intimate fellowship. And he shows them his hands and his feet, which show them the eternal scars of his love for them. And he promises them the Holy Spirit that will fill them. And that presence is satisfying to them. By the way, 
scholars tell us that the Gospel of Luke is written for the church, and it was a handbook for the early church. Luke wrote it thinking about how the early church would use this to understand how they're supposed to live. And so the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead and the times that he appears to his disciples, they eat together, was a lesson to them about how their worship was to go. Communion was a centerpiece of their worship. They often broke the body and the blood and they ate with Jesus. And they thought about the scars in his hands and his feet and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and they thought about God's presence with them. And that was satisfying to them. Now here's my question for you. You seek a presence in your life. You seek something that will fill your life with satisfaction and joy. What are you seeking presence in? Some of you sought it in marriage. Again, many of you got married thinking that you'd marry that perfect companion and metaphorically ride off into the sunset into marital bliss and they met all your dreams come true, but now you're disappointed. That's because you were looking to marriage for something that only God could give. The arms you sought in romantic love were his arms. You maybe didn't know that, but that's what you were seeking. You were seeking his arms. The thrill that you sought in sex and drugs, that thrill was actually in his presence. The security and significance and soul delight that you sought in money, that was found in him. If we find in ourselves a desire that nothing on earth can satisfy, the only explanation must be that we are longing for someone who has slipped beyond the plane of this world. If we find in ourselves a desire that nothing on earth can satisfy, the only explanation must be that we are longing for someone who has slipped beyond the plane of this world. The resurrected Jesus. You see, the disciples from this point on would in many ways have pretty hard lives. Read the book of Acts. Again, I don't have time to get into it today, but they're shipwrecked, they're beaten, they're despised, they're lied about, they're mistreated. But they had a joy that amazed everybody. Do you have that kind of joy? What is your joy dependent on? The right circumstances, owning this, accomplishing this, being with this person? Fill in the blank. Fill, fill, fill in the blank. In order to be happy, I must have blank. How do you, what do you put there? In order to be happy, I must blank. Because whatever that is, you are anchoring your joy into, and I'm telling you, it won't work. Can I give you something to chew on all week long? Get this. Your ability to have joy in all things is the measure of how much you understand and believe the gospel. Your ability to have joy in all things is the measure of how much you understand and believe the gospel. Because if you knew the treasure of the gospel, even when parts of your life were going wrong, you would not be devastated because you got something better than life, something deeper than the pain. Somebody punches you in the face. Right? Nothing happy about that. But if you knew how much Jesus had forgiven you of, you could maintain joy even in the midst of a bloody nose because Jesus' forgiveness is a greater treasure to you and is a better treasure and a deeper treasure than that taken away by the pain. You don't lose your temper when somebody punches you in the face. Why? Because you have joy in God. And yeah, it hurts. But you can forgive them because they haven't touched your treasure. Some of you are like, well, I need to learn how to control my temper better. No, you need to learn how to have joy in God. Because if you knew how to have joy in God, you would find your temper was much more able to be controlled because things would not be as devastating to you. Because they weren't attacking your identity. They're not attacking your real treasure. That's found in the resurrected Christ, and you can't touch that. So take your best shot. Because you can't touch I got a joy that's anchored in a presence that death and disease and deprivation cannot take away. Your ability to have joy in all things is a measure of how much you understand the gospel. Your stocks crash. Nothing happy about that. Can you have joy? You can if you got a joy that the stock market can't touch. That goes deeper than your stocks. Again, the disciples are going to become some pretty unbelievable people. They're going to be bold. They're going to zealous. They're going to change the world. I want you to hear this. Listen, they didn't start that way. They started out as little idiots. They started out like you, me. They're not fundamentally different people. They just had their roots, their certainty, their hope, their purpose, and their presence. Their roots were in the gospel, in the resurrected Jesus, and that gave them a joy and a zeal and a boldness. They're not different. They're not born that way. They're not born leaders. They're born idiots. You can have the joy, the boldness, and the world-changing power they had if you will anchor your life in what they anchored theirs in. Joy and boldness and zeal, those are the fruits 
if the resurrection is the root. Quit trying to think if you can just master and figure out how to have joy and boldness and zeal. No, just plant your flower in the right place. And those things will come as naturally to you as roses on a rose bush. Where's your certainty? Where's your hope? Where's your purpose? Where's your presence? I love how the old hymn says it. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest freight, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. The resurrected Christ is the solid rock on which I stand. All the others are sinking sand. That's why I have founded my hope, my purpose, my presence, and my joy my certainty on something that death and deprivation cannot take away so when the sands go the rock remains where is your certainty hope purpose and presence once you bow your heads if you will pray with me i do not want to close this series without making sure that you have an understanding that you are able to respond to this the gospel is clear in luke Here's what it is. You owe a penalty for your sin that you cannot pay. So Jesus, in his love, paid that penalty for you and offers it as a gift to all who will receive it. It's like any other gift. You have to receive it. And to receive it, Jesus said, is two things, repentance and faith. Repentance means that you surrender your life to Jesus. Repentance sounds something like this. Lord Jesus, you're the Lord, not me. I surrender to you. Say that in your own words. If you've never done that before, if you've never trusted Jesus, say that in your own words to him in your heart. Jesus, I surrender. I repent. Believe means that you receive the gift that he gave to you. Jesus, I receive right now the gift of salvation that you offer to me. In your own words, repent and believe. Some of you in here are believers and you've already made that decision, but maybe what you need to do right now is maybe you've forgotten the gospel and maybe your certainty, maybe your hope, maybe your purpose and your presence have become anchored in something that really can't sustain them. And I would invite you right now to recenter your life on the gospel, to remember the gospel, to anchor your life in that rock. Father, I pray first for those people who for the first time today are trusting you as their Savior. Lord, you started, as we've gone through this Gospel of Luke, you've started a work in some of them, and as we end the Gospel of Luke, your work may not be done. So I ask you to finish what you've started. Give them the courage to talk to that person who invited them, that before they leave today, they would have this settled. Start, finish what you started, Jesus. Lord, I pray for believers that we would have a certainty, a hope, a purpose, and a presence that was anchored in something beyond the skies, something that death and disease and deprivation could not touch that we would be anchored in the gospel. I ask that, Lord, in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name, amen.